0: Part of what creates some of this tension in our lives, and I experience this too, is this thought that, that we're expected, and this is a total lie that we get told our whole lives, that we, ha- we have to choose between these two things, that we can't have adventure and home.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with author and philosopher Chloe Cooper-Jones, whose memoir Easy Beauty was a New York Times notable book last year. Easy Beauty isn't listed as a travel book, it tends to be listed under philosophy or disability issues or memoir, but it has a lot of travel in it, since each chapter takes place in a different city, some of them as far flung as Italy or Cambodia. The title Easy Beauty comes from a philosophical idea connected to Bernard Bosinquet, who suggests that easy beauty has an immediacy to it, like a sunset or a rose, whereas difficult beauty requires time and patience and education to appreciate its complexity. Bosinquet also talks about the concept of width, which involves beauty that makes us realize our own smallness, kind of like Kant's idea of the sublime. My conversation with Chloe took us into many thoughtful and surprising directions. We talk about the ways experiences that are curated for us differ from those that take us by surprise. We talk about how the hero's journey can be a very real thing, even in modern life, and how taking journeys is good for both the health of the traveler and the health of the community he or she returns to. We talk about the dangers of reducing a person or a culture down to their most tragic aspects and how Aristotle's paradox of tragedy might apply to travel experiences like dark tourism. Before we jump into the conversation, I'll mention that I have a few slots left in the travel memoir classes I teach each summer in Paris. If you're interested in an intensive one-week course about how to write a memoir based on your travel experiences, check out the link in the show notes or go to pariswritingworkshops.com to see what's on offer. For now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chloe Cooper-Jones, which took place in Washington, D.C. late last year. It begins with a discussion of difficult and easy beauty in the context of travel. Let's listen in. it feels like travel the travel industry is geared towards easy beauty because we go to the obvious places um and there's a reason why we go to obvious places you know that there's um and i want to i want to touch on some of the ones places you went to in your book yeah but um one thing i argue for a lot in my new book the vagabond's way are is this counterintuitive thing that the tourist the, the travel industry doesn't encourage us to do which is you know, slowing down and making yourself open to boredom and mistakes and loneliness and things like that, because it feels mm-hmm. like, in the travel sense, and there's a ton of travel in your book, um, and so I'm, I'm curious about unpacking some of this stuff, in the travel sense that uh, difficult beauty comes in finding the non-sightseeing, vista, Instagram, overlook type places. Yeah. Um, and so to sort of as as a window into this place, I was tickled that you went to Lake Como in Italy mm-hmm. because of social media advertisement?
0: Yeah, it was like Beyonce was there, like George Clooney was there, and I was a train right away, and I didn't have to be I was in Milan and it was like you, an hour. You were in
1: Milan for a for a concert. For a concert. Right.
0: But I had some time and you know, yeah, Instagram was like, oh, this is the most beautiful Place on the planet, and I looked. I was, you know, I think I can't remember. It was a very cheap ticket, and an hour train ride north, and suddenly I was yeah in the lakes district and in, in Lake Como, and turns out it is really beautiful. It's very easy beauty. It's very immediate, overwhelming, very powerful beauty. And there are several passages in the book where it's so overwhelming that it almost makes me feel angry or like ill hmm. because there's just so i mean there's all these wild rosemary bushes everywhere so the air smells so good and it's like beautiful fruit growing from every tree it's just it's a yeah it's this very majestic place but i think that part of what occurs to me in these sorts of places is an inherent discomfort or almost a rejection of easy beauty And I think what you're talking about with the travel industry, like trying to always lead us toward the simplest or easiest forms of beauty. Well, there's good reason. And you said this, like, there's a really good reason why. Like the Coliseum, that's cool to see it. You know, the National Portrait Gallery, I want to see that. You know, it's like all these places that are the Louvre. It's cool. I'm glad I've been there. But... I think that it's really easy to feel. I'll speak for myself. You tell me if you think this relates to you at all. It's easy to feel like I'm not having an experience of a place as a real and singular and specific person. Hmm. I'm having the generalized experience I'm having the appropriate or expected experience and sometimes that curated and expected and quote-unquote appropriate experience of a place is very nice is excellent and there are all these ways in which they'll make it really easy for you to have that but I just don't feel like I'm a real person I feel like I become like a number or I feel I become um yeah just a a a empty consumer. But I also don't want to be snobbish or churn away from those experiences. So I think the interesting thing about travel for me is the tension between going and seeing really famous things that I'm excited to have seen and and happy and proud that I've seen them. But then also, I think what you just said a few minutes ago is so brilliant, beautiful, like leaving space for boredom and for failure to get lost, to not have a plan, to have a plan go wrong, to get on the wrong train, to talk to people you didn't plan on talking to, to wander into a place you didn't think you would go. And it's so hard to give yourself permission to do that. And I think finding the tension between those two experiences or the right balance of those two experiences is what can make travel so, you know, deeply rewarding.
1: Have you read Walker Percy's The Loss of the Creature?
0: I haven't read that.
1: Okay. You should read that. Oh. Yeah. Um he talks about he talks about this. He he has a great line in it. It's like, why is the thing less interesting when more people are present? Is mm-hmm. looking like sucking, the more people there, the less there is to see. He's yeah. talking about he hypothesizes these travelers in Mexico who discover an indigenous corn festival by accident and they're really excited about it. And then he sort of breaks down philosophically how that is suddenly a dangerous experience. Like if they run into an anthropologist who explains it, then that sort of takes away from the mystique of what they just found. Mm. Um, And it ties in um, to what we're talking about, just the idea of a generalized experience. Like uh, you go to a tourist, you go to Teotihuacan in Mexico and you stand in line and you buy a ticket and you look at the wonders of... Aztec civilization, but it doesn't feel like yours, you know, that, yeah. you, you, that you're one of a unit. You are, you're a member of, of the mass tourism industry, you know, yeah. that you're not right. someone who, who stumbled upon this. And actually, he, Percy in the essay uses the example of the Spanish explorers who were in Arizona, just like finding the Grand Canyon by accident. They saw it in a way that someone who takes a tourist bus to the South Rim doesn't see it. And he's not super snobby and sort of being anti-tourist. But he just sort of talks about how we perceive things. And it reminded me of what you were talking about, just in the idea that these easy beauty travel experiences that are often curated for us, um, that are usually curated for us, um, by the very fact that they are curated for us, they become Mm -hmm. less ours, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or I feel like I'm being spoken to by these curated experiences. Necessarily a curator has to say, what do people like? What do people want? You know, how do I, how do we make this thing appeal to people? But of course, I'm not people. I'm, I'm me. <laughs> I'm, I'm Chloe. You know, you're Rolf. Like, so, so it's never ever speaking to me directly. And that's okay. That like, that's fine. But, but I'm highly aware of that distance, um, or the, just the sort of feeling the gap between being a singular person self and being treated or communicated to as people and I think maybe this experience is sort of heightened for me because I often travel alone and interestingly like when I travel with my son now I don't I don't feel that gap quite as much because I just want him to learn as much as possible I'm so grateful for anybody who's going to be teaching him something or a tour guide that's going to be leading him like I'm just so excited for him to see everything that I don't have the same sort of bristling reaction but when I'm traveling alone I'm so hyper aware of being a, a wholly unique self moving around the world and wanting to have all of my experiences be yeah be my own which is you know, an impossible thing. It's a ridiculous thing that I want, but I still want it. And I think a lot of the best travel writers are people who've somehow figured out how to move through the world and view it through their own very singular lens and bring it back to us in literature, not from the perspective of, you know, people, but the perspective of one mind. And that's what makes that literature so incredible.
1: I'm a fan of Pico Iyer because he was one of the first writers to to go to Japan and say, "Yeah, the, the kimono is the kimono, but let's go see baseball." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's ancient ceremonies in India that we can talk about, but let's look at their ripoff Bollywood versions of Rambo and talk about that. Mm-hmm. And he was able to find something very unique by seeking commonalities instead of exoticized differences, mm-hmm. um, and how cultural specificity can be expressed in Things that we may think are familiar, when in fact they are taking a different form.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, have you read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance?
0: I have, but it's been a long time. I think I read it in like high school.
1: It's t- totally a book that people read. I in think, high school.
0: yeah, it's a book yeah. people read in high school, so it's been quite a while, yeah.
1: Well, he talks about Robert Percy talks yeah. about Crater Lake in Oregon and the fact that, that it's so gazed upon. Um, it's it's very similar to the Walker Percy observation. That it makes it, it somehow lessens its quality, because Capital Q Quality is a big obsession of that book. Mm -hmm. That the fact that so many people are there and they're just driving up in their station wagons and seeing it, then it has a different quality than another um, parallel is Niagara Falls. Like once, Mm -hmm. if you read literature from before roads were built to Niagara Falls, it was more exciting for people to hike through the forest for hours and then see the falls as yeah, opposed to yeah. now you can just, you can take the same car that you drove out of your driveway and wherever and you can drive to the very edge of Niagara Falls and see it. Um, so yeah, it feels like this is part of, this is a, a sort of a philosophical wrinkle, the easy beauty, difficult beauty on something that I've thought about a lot. I think travel writers have talked about quite a bit, um, about seeing past easy beauty and to seeing The specificity of this difficult beauty, or am I stretching Mm -hmm. the metaphor?
0: No, I think I think you. I think it's there to be stretched. You know, I think. You know, Bosinck gives us these three categories: complexity, tension, and width. But they're intentionally pretty vague and and general categories. I think that the the distinction is immediacy versus patience, right? Or you know, sort of instant feeling of pleasure versus a type of pleasure that has to be earned in some sort of way, whether it be, yeah, through education, through time, through willingness. And I really like what you said. I think a willingness to fail in our ability to access difficult beauty is actually a really important part of difficult beauty because difficult beauty will arrive first not as beauty at all. And so our first attempts to really understand it or to to really take great pleasure in difficult beauty will probably start with failure. Hmm. We'll hmm. start with like spinning our wheels, not knowing what we're looking at, what we're hearing, what we're watching. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think the, the disorientation of travel sort of favors that. Travel is a good setting in which to seek, even though we've been sort of marketed to, to seek easy beauty, travel lends itself through through displacement to sort of accidentally stumble into difficult beauty. Yeah. One thing I noticed, like the believer version of, you, you had an essay that appeared in Best American Travel Writing, and mm-hmm. a lot of that is in the book. I'm not sure if this part made it into the book, but it interested me. You ran into a woman after seeing Lake Como who said that, um, what did she say? Oh, it's nice for tourists, but I'm acc- I'm accustomed to this view. I'm bored of it. Did that make it into the book? No, it's not
0: in the book actually. Yeah, that that that's interesting that you point that out. I that's the ending of the original essay about Lake Como. Is um, yeah, there's this beautiful Italian barista that used to work at the coffee shop down the block in Brooklyn, and I said, oh, I you know I just went to Italy, and she said, oh, where did you go? And I said, I went to Rome, and I depends i went to like Como. i went to milan she was like oh god you know and she just sort of immediately she was very nice but she just immediately said yeah well that's where the Taurus goes and i prefer i prefer a different view and the second she said it it deflated the power of, mm. of what i had seen and it's so funny to me because i there were some readers that wrote to me going i would never let anybody Deflate the power of. what I thought something, and I, I just like no, no, we do that all the time. We do that all. We do it to ourselves. Like, I've lived in New York now for over a decade, and there are things that thrilled me in the first year of living in New York. The first few times that I visited New York City, that now I'm just like, oh God, I can't. I couldn't stand doing that thing. Or going to that place again, or I'm so bored of the High Line or something like that, you know, no offense to the High Line, but I don't want to go there anymore. I'm bored. And that's okay. That's just part of being human. Like things that thrill us shift. They shift because of our overexposure to them or the way that we're fed, you know, exposure to it through media or, um, or other sources. And also like other people's perspectives on those things. They that just that's just being human. So people who are pushing back against that I think maybe just don't know themselves that well. It's sometimes kinda of sad. Like I wish the Highline felt the same every single time I saw it, but it doesn't. You like the Highline still?
1: Yes, but now it's 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 woven yeah. in with stories. It's like where my nephew Cedar lost his the, oh. the Fedora hat that he bought from a street vendor and it's places where i walked at night with girlfriends that i no longer mm-hmm. talk to and and things like that and see
0: that's a nicer way of talking about exact that's like the this is you're saying the same thing but in the but in sort of an inverse way where it's like the places change for you too but but certain places become richer with meaning
1: mm-hmm.
0: through exposure whereas i'm like well but of course i have my own versions of that places that be through through constant exposure Become richer with meaning, and other places that lose their power for me, exposure. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I, um, just so my listeners know, the the High Line is this elevated, this great reclaimed elevated park in New York. It's great. Um, that's that's worth going to for sure.
0: <laughs> Everyone should go there <laughs> for sure.
1: <laughs> but actually, while you're talking about the High Line, I was thinking of Barth. Famously said he loves to eat in the Eiffel Tower restaurant. Mm. And when he was asked why, this was years ago, I don't think Barth is around anymore, he said, it's the only place I don't have to look at the goddamn Eiffel Tower, right?
0: Oh, that's funny. Um,
1: and I don't know, maybe that is apocryphal, but just the idea that per this metaphor, I wrote a book about souvenirs and I was like in, at the edge of the 5th Avenue des I was like an hour's walk from the Eiffel Tower. I went to a souvenir store and it was full of Eiffel Tower stuff. And I asked the woman who ran the store, why do you sell so many Eiffel Tower stuff when you're, this is Hemingway's neighborhood. This is Orwell's neighborhood. All this interesting thing happened there. It's like, well, people want to buy, yeah. you know, that, that the Eiffel Tower is such a metaphor. And I actually had friends, um, I guess you would call them working class friends who visited me, um, in Paris where I teach a class every year, Wichita friends, and they were so excited. To see the eiffel tower because mm-hmm. that certified that they were there yeah um and in new york it might be the statue of liberty more so than the high line but i think that there's ways of being jaded there's almost sort of a hipster vernacular you know that this woman you just happen to run into her in brooks brooklyn brooklyn has old hips hipster affectation just the, the one downsmanship of the hipster you know anything that's too mainstream you don't want to praise too much that yeah. could be a generation x thing but um yeah, and why why did that line get a, a dropped from the book? Because I thought that was interesting. That was an interesting yeah. counterpoint to to easy beauty.
0: I think. So, yeah, I don't. I I think because the book ended up. Well, this would have fit. I mean, I don't know why exactly it got dropped from the book. I think the way the chapter ends now is very much about. The whole book is very much about perspectives constantly shifting and con. You know. Throughout the book, almost on every page, there's an example of me thinking a thing and being wrong, and that was very intentional and and also sort of a strange thing for memoir because, or nonfiction, typically like the basic rule, like the first rule of nonfiction is um, you need to trust your narrator. You need to trust that they're telling you the truth, and I am always telling the truth in this book, but... I'm then finding out that the truth that I'm telling you is is wrong, um, and that I was wrong. And so the ch- way the chapter ends now is sort of talking about this man who who didn't want to have kids, and then now as a father has two kids, and and how wrong he was. And I say, you know, I want to gloat, but it's only instructive, and it reminds me how easily it is that things just. Your opinions, your thoughts, your convictions, how they can just be taken out um, like waves sort of crashing in and then taking them out to sea. So I do think the barista example accomplishes a similar thing, but I don't know. I have my reasons at the time for needing needing to change it. That's cool, though, that you remember that line. Thanks. It was
1: cool. I, like, I just grabbed onto that just because it was, it was this twist of the yeah. easy beauty thing. And so much of your book is about self-narrative and how the story you tell about yourself, even to yourself, can change. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it feels like as travelers, oftentimes, our first story is, I saw the Eiffel Tower. And then after the sixth time we go to Paris, it would be too embarrassing to be that excited (laughs) about the Eiffel Tower, even if it is sort of awe-inspiring. And it's like, oh, I found this nice gallery in the 20th, 20th, and it was really great. And it was next to this Senegalese fusion restaurant.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) Again, it's that that hipster vernacular where, (laughs) where, um, and again, leave it to me to stretch travel metaphors through everything. But um, we tell stories about ourselves, but then as travelers, we tell stories about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like two tensions in your book. Actually, another another big travel trope is Cambodia and the mm-hmm. dark tourism that comes with Cham- Cambodia, yeah. and I want to get to that. That's sort of the other pole. That's the antipode in a sense to to mm-hmm. Lake Como. But then you also have these two uh, forces in your life: your mom and your dad. And mm-hmm. and um and so your dad is this wanderer, and you were born in Bangkok. Is yeah, that right? was yeah. Yeah. Does that confer any any dual citizenship? No,
0: actually, they. It used to be the. Um, it was like the year before I was born. If I had been born like one or two years older, I would automatically have dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. But then they changed it. And I was born to two American citizens that were just living abroad for many years. So I was just, just an American.
1: Right. Well, <laughs> I, I should probably tell my listeners that actually uh, there's sort of a post-hippie trail narrative to your parents being in Asia. And then I know you. I've known you for at least 10 years because we're both from Kansas, mm-hmm. right? Um but I thought that was interesting. I don't think I knew that about you. I don't, I don't think mm-hmm. I knew that you were born there and that your parents were working in Kathmandu. Your mom yeah. was teaching in Kathmandu. And so, and then your dad, like your mom, it sounds like she's a little bit of a farm girl, ranch girl who has horses in Kansas, whereas your dad was just sort of a hero's journey, wander the <laughs> earth type guy. And I read their situation. Um, right around the time you were born, and they sort of wanted to be what would now be called digital nomads, right? But like Pre-digital digital nomads. They just sort of wanted to live indefinitely, or at least mm-hmm. your dad did. Um, and so how did that influence you? Like you're hardwiring. Um, this isn't in the travel section. Easy Beauty is not in the travel section. Mm-hmm. It struck me as a travel bu- book because travel is close to my heart. Um, how hardwired you, were you to become a traveler?
0: I think extremely hardwired. I mean, I think this is a travel book. I mean, it it gets called whatever, it gets called all kinds of different things and people put it in all different sections of bookstores, but it absolutely is a travel log. I mean, every chapter takes place in a different city. My mother was really, in many ways, the driving force of this travel through Asia. She'd always wanted to go. Her sister, Mayandra Jan, was teaching in Nepal And my parents decided to spend, I think it was a total of six or seven years they were in Asia. So they were in Japan for a while. They were in Kathmandu for a lot of that time. They traveled a ton together. And there was a group of people that they fell in with that, yeah, spent decades overseas, especially in Kathmandu. It was very easy to live and you didn't need a lot of money. I was born in Bangkok just because of the hospitals, but we lived in, in Kathmandu and my first few years of life were in Kathmandu.
1: Hmm.
0: But I, you know, I grew up I think there were two things that my parents really hard you know built built into me in a really profound way. And they had two very different approaches to these things. One was travel and the other was art. And my mother, as a traveler, was really curious, very thoughtful, a great collector of things. And she brought back from Nepal and from Japan and from other travels all these like incredible rugs and prints and paintings and the actually the bracelet that i'm wearing right now and your you know your listeners can't see this but you can see this all three of these bracelets are from nepal the day she found out she was pregnant she went and no bought kidding. these bracelets yeah can yeah they're from the 80s mm-hmm. and she bought them and wore them and saved them and then um gave them to me when i was in my 20s and i've been wearing them ever since so i still have I mean, this is actually just like an incredibly representative thing of both travel and art in my mother's way of thinking. It's like art for her and travel was very relational. It was very, it's very communal. We grew up, I grew up in a home that was like, looked like an art museum. And the meals my mother made were incredibly creative. And she hand, you know, sewed a lot of my clothing and you know, painted my headboards with rabbits and, you know, strange, strange nature scenes and carved things and painted things. And she was just an incredible maker of art, a constant producer of art. But her idea of art and travel and seeing the world was really about it was just it was relational, it was interpersonal It was about making something for someone or capturing an image of someone or something she loved. Our house is like filled with horse paintings because she loves her horses. So she paints them over and over. And my father's idea, I think of both art and travel was much more about launching the sort of singular genius wanderer into the world. And so he wanted to go everywhere, he wanted to eat everything, he wanted to meet everybody, he wanted to have every experience. He said in a letter to me, and I write about this in the book, that he had a motorcycle personality where he was unstable while idling, but stable on the move. Hmm. And I think also the way that translates to his theory about art is he really gave me this idea that art was about finding one's own sort of the thing that made you unlike anyone else your own singular genius plucking it out of your brain and making it tangible so writing a book that only you could write or producing a piece of music that only you could make and it was about displaying that for the world rather than my mother who was always making things often just like her art is just for one person right she's just making a cool scarf for me and that's it and it's not about here's my singular genius as your mother and I'm going to display this scarf in the louvre no it's just i'm going to i'm going to use my creativity to to make everyday life better and i think that the interesting thing for me is that i really idolized and revered and there's a lot of social conditioning to revere the way my father thinks about art and travel and there's a way in which my mother's method of thinking about those things is seen, I don't know, as more domestic or quaint or less serious or something. And I think one of the great gifts that they gave me was an opportunity to value both of those things and then in myself to figure out how to synthesize those two influences rather than letting them fight against each other, which they easily can. And for my parents was a source of great conflict, the way they saw the world so differently. And they're the source of conflict within me, which propels a lot of the book. But the goal for me is to not get rid of any of these ideas, but rather to synthesize them so that I can be a little wider or have, have a broader vision of what travel and art and propelling yourself out into the world of others what that could actually look like.
1: Yeah, this is this is weirdly prescient to things that I've been thinking about and writing about, which is the balance between travel and home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just the idea that indefinite wandering yields diminishing returns mm-hmm. long enough. I don't know if you've read The Sheltering Sky.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, Paul Everybody
1: Everybody quotes, you know, um, there's some sort of traveler versus tourist distinction there. A, a tourist mm-hmm. rushes home after a few weeks, whereas a traveler moves through continents over the course of a lifetime or something. Mm -hmm. That's such a sad story. Like, it's such a grim tale, right? Just the idea that those two characters would probably be better served by creating a sense for home. Um, I think one of them disappears and one of them goes insane Mm. or something. So um, this this is worth discussing. I think probably some people listening to this right now are digital nomads who are sort of traveling their way into an idea of what home could be. Um, And there's an exhilaration to the idea that you can travel indefinitely, but I think it sort of needs to be counterbalanced. I mean, maybe there's some people who are hardwired to travel forever and that is a way to be happy, but I think finding home is essential in its own way too. There's actually a story that your dad tells you it's sort of a children's book story. I, I, I stumbled into two allusions to children's books that I was astonished that are not children's books. One was The Grateful Acre from, from uh, uh, Will Arbery's um, yeah. Heroes of the Fourth Turning. <laughs> I, I, I was weirdly entranced by The Grateful a, Grateful Acre. Um, and I'll either cut this out or put it in the show notes so people know what I'm talking about. But the <laughs> other is this, this story that your dad told you. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you can read?
0: If you have it, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is great, okay. My father had an idea for a children's book. He recited the idea to me many times when I was little. It was to be a story about beauty. It begins with the father saying goodnight to his daughter. The daughter is afraid to be alone and so she begs the father to stay and teach her something new. What do you want me to teach you, the father asks. And the daughter says, teach me about beauty. What is the most beautiful thing in the world? And just then a snake appears at the window. In the Western tradition, snakes got a bad rap. They were seen as symbols of evil and temptation. But in the Eastern tradition, snakes could represent growth, rebirth. The snake comes in through the window and takes the daughter and says, he will show her the world. And the snake takes them to the Taj Mahal. And the daughter asks, is this the most beautiful thing in the world? And the snake says, no, and then shows them the Grand Canyon. And the daughter asks, is this the most beautiful thing in the world? And the snake says, no, and takes her to the top of Mount Everest, and then to the bazaars in Nepal, and then to the temples in Japan. And the daughter says, which of these things is the most beautiful? And the snake says, none of these things are the most beautiful. I will take you one last place. And the snake flies the girl back over the fields of Kansas and down a familiar street and through the window of a familiar home. And the snake says, open your eyes and see. And there is the father reading this story to his daughter. Yeah. My dad used to tell me that story a lot at at night. He'd be like, oh, I'm gonna write this story. And he would tell me it at nighttime and he would change the places all the time. And they'd always be places that he had seen and so the snake was always taking me to, yeah, like the bazaars of Nepal or, you know, some some great museum that he'd visited. But the idea was like nothing was more beautiful than the father reading the story to the daughter.
1: It, it's such an elegant narrative, you know. But it's it's almost like a a Buddhist presence type thing, you know. That all you have is where you are. So maybe that's what beauty mm-hmm. is,
0: you know. Yeah, and then but I mean the. The sort of irony of it is, my father is incapable of staying in one place. His motorcycle personality made it such that that staying and reading to your child was not really a thing he could commit to. And there's at the end of the book, or in that same chapter, actually, um, ends with my mother is reading to me. We're all in a hotel room in Miami, and it's pouring down rain, and she's brought all these books to read to my son. And so we're just all sitting, my husband, my son, and my mother, we're all sitting in this hotel room, sort of locked into it together as, as it's pouring down rain in Miami, and she just reads to us. And I think that's the most familiar thing in the world, but she was someone who could stay and and be very grounded in the idea of home. And I think that part of what creates some of this tension in our lives, and I experience this too, is this thought that that we're expected, and this is a total lie that we get told our whole lives that we ha- we have to choose between these two things that we can't have adventure and home, that we can't have solitude and partnership, that we can't be free and be a wanderer and also honor our commitments to the people that we that we call home, and I think that that's the you know the. The, if I have one great project of my life, it's to synthesize, it. again, I keep saying that word, but, but to try to have both of those things, because I think that's the only way for me to be authentically present in any of these realms, travel or home, is to have both working together in some sort of way.
1: Well, one twist, and I'm going to paraphrase this wrong, after you tell the story about your dad, it's just the idea that the hero's journey only mm-hmm. works if the hero actually comes back and comes home. Odysseus, yeah. only, the Odyssey, only makes sense if if Odysseus comes home. Um, yeah, and that's something that your dad had trouble doing. It sounds like.
0: Yeah, the hero's journey ends with the hero returning with new knowledge, and then being able to implement this new knowledge or this, you know, golden chalice or whatever it is, into home. So that's part of why the hero's journey is such this incredibly enduring, psychologically powerful narrative structure, right? Is that you feel something is missing in your life and part of maturity and part of growth and part of being a self that's separate from from the community that birthed you or raised you is leaving home and then going and getting something, right? (laughs) Whatever it is. And, and then returning to a home, being able to be more, more whole. And if you can't do that, if you're always wandering, um, then yeah, then the journey, it sort of never ends, which I think is part of the appeal, right? You don't want the journey to end because that feels like death or something, but it's not because the hero's journey is, is a circle. So you can just go on it again. You can just keep going. <laughs> like People are like, I don't want to end the journey because that's death, and it's like, or you just get to go on another <laughs> hero's journey, like a new one.
1: Star Wars ended, and then there's the Empire Strikes Back.
0: Yeah, there's all these, <laughs> yeah, it's like they keep making those movies, so.
1: Something that didn't occur to me till just now is the perspective of the home community as the hero le- leaves and comes back. I suspect, i would interested to know what you think, that it's good for the health of a given community to have people doing hero's journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in, in my new book, I talk about this uh, Bau, um ritual on the island of Sumatra called Merentau, where young people are encouraged to leave and then come back. You know, it, it's it's almost like Wanderjar der in, in the German tradition, but basically part of coming of age in, for Mininkabau kids is to leave and then come back. And I think part of the reason it is that way is so that they can broaden the knowledge of the community, that they send young people out and they come back with news of the outside world and skills from the outside world to make mm-hmm. that community better. And it makes me wonder, you might know more about this, if the hardwiring of the hero's journey is as much about the community as is the hero.
0: I think absolutely it is. Yeah, 100%. And I think that that's part of the beauty of the balance of the hero's journey is that the hero's journey is often this solitary endeavor in which one figures out what they're made of, right? They are tested by all kinds of, um, you know, if you actually just look at the 12, you know, sort of 12 basic steps of the hero's journey, which my book has 12 chapters Hmm. for a reason, um, and maps onto all of these things very intentionally. It, you, the hero's journey is this solitary adventure in which you both fight monsters, but you also have to learn how to accept help from mentors. There's always a mentor. There's always a guide. And quite often, the hero doesn't listen to the mentor first and then figures out how to. So it's, it's a story about really figuring out how to be a member of a community, how to be strong, how to withstand difficulty, how to listen to other people, how to incorporate other people's expertise into your own toolkit. And then take something that, you know, from, from this adventure back and become a better member of your community. And you need that balance because that solitude, that loneliness, that single self is, I think, always in search of a whole and a community. And again, it's like the hero's journey doesn't end with like the hero just becoming a you know a sheep and then following whatever his community or or her community needs but but enriches like by being a singular solitary self by being unique and specific enriches the lives of others in the community so yeah it's just like it's a very it's an ancient and powerful narrative for a reason and if you can't figure out how to come home and give to people If you can't figure out how to take the wealth of your knowledge and share it, I think there will be a feeling of incompleteness um, for a lot of people, certainly for me. Yeah, but you don't have to stay home. You can go again. (laughs) That's a thing. (laughs) Well, it's
1: through, like, your book does not end with some sort of grand epiphany. I mean, it has an epiphany of sorts, but it doesn't end with the narrator being complete. But there's a realization of that of the relationship. It feels like that you were just talking about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it ends. It's the only chapter that takes place in Brooklyn, for the most part. And I come home, and in many ways, it's a it's absolutely the quietest chapter. A lot of it is me walking my son to school, or um, you know, doing dishes with my husband, or making my favorite sentence in the whole book is actually in that chapter where we're just talking about what to make for dinner on a busy weeknight. You know, you're like stressed out Tuesday night dinner and we just decide to make gyozas, which is this frozen dumpling that we eat a lot of in our house on a busy Tuesday night. And so the sentence is just frozen gyozas again. Um, And I love that (laughs) sentence because it's like, it's, it's describing something so quotidian and And in a way, also, like the thread, like the truest threads of intimacy in my familial life is those rushed dinners that we rotate over and over and over again. And so the goal of that chapter in following the hero's journey is that, you know, I begin the book talking about the grandeur or the beauty um, in, in using sort of very stylized prose to describe things like Bernini sculptures and Verdi operas and I use that same prose and that same reverence at the end of the book to talk about walking my son to school making a Tuesday night dinner and the book ends with me just listening to the sounds of my husband making me coffee and so to try to find those moments as powerfully beautiful as a Bernini sculpture which is not to to diminish the Bernini, but in fact, to just add this new depth of beauty in my life, which at the beginning of the book, I can't appreciate. I don't know how to appreciate it. Hmm. Hmm. But the new knowledge is that I can appreciate those things and find, find the same aesthetic joy in those moments that, that I found in you know looking at, at a lake in Italy.
1: I like that you mentioned among quotidian things, washing dishes, mm-hmm. because Thich Nhat Hanh uh, talks about this a lot. Like when you're washing dishes, you should be enjoying washing dishes because if you're thinking about the delicious plum mm-hmm. you're eating tomorrow, then when you're eating the delicious plum, you'll be thinking of something else, right? Yeah. It's sort of forcing yourself in the moment. So it feels like the, your father's story about the most beautiful world, place in the world being here, the father reading a story to the daughter, is tied into that final line of the book where it was basically you walking your son to school or something?
0: Yeah, I walk him to school and I, I just, yeah, I say this is a moment he won't remember, but I'll remember for the rest of my life that this is, yeah, this exact moment of walking him home. Um, and it was like, I remember this so well because New York has, in the fall, you know this well, like just the best light in the world, I think. Um, And New York City in September, October, November is my absolute favorite place in the world. So it was just one of those like perfect warm, but still very like fall afternoons. And I thought "This this is the most beautiful thing I'll ever experience, just holding my son's hand, walking home from school.
1: I think some of the best travel epiphanies are realizing the beauties of home. Um, yeah. When my wife lived in Brooklyn, she would often go. I forget which part of Brooklyn it is, but you're sort of looking over at Manhattan. I'm sure Walt Whitman wrote a poem about it at some <laughs> point. Um, but it reminded her. Of her she, it was an open sky that reminded her of Kansas, of mm. being from Kansas, and so she could sort of marry these two parts of herself. You know, this aspiring uh, okay. actor person who's reminding herself of her groundedness. Um, and of course, now she's at Kansas again. You know, now that she's married to me. Um, I did promise we would talk about Cambodia and dark tourism, so sure. we should probably go there.
0: Let's um, do it.
1: So you went to Cambodia and you met your, your tuk-tuk driver. Remind me his name? Chetra. Yeah, Chetra. Um, and it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he had like a menu of things to do.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, a literal like sheet of things you could do as laminated,
0: a tourist. Like, diner-style laminated, like diner style laminated menu. Yeah.
1: And as I saw in Cambodia 20 years ago, I'm sure it wasn't that different. There are some temples, but then there's also the killing fields, mm-hmm. you know, prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were literally going there to sort of take a look at dark tourism. Mm-hmm. And so why, you know, you'd been to Lake Como, sort of an easy beauty place. Was this about difficult beauty or something else?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I had this idea for um, a dissertation, which then I abandoned, um, which I still think is a good idea, but I abandoned it. Anyway, That I would write about this idea called the paradox of tragedy, which runs all the way through philosophy, but really begins with Aristotle, who just simply asks when he's thinking about the poetics and aesthetics and storytelling – Asks, you know, why is it that in art we want to experience sadness and tragedy and horror? And he says, you know, there's all these people that are going to see Oedipus Rex in their free time, and that play doesn't end well. Spoiler <laughs> alert. So
1: as to, as opposed to all those ancient Greek yeah comedies, yeah, exactly, right?
0: yeah, a lot of these. So it's <laughs> like, people are going you know they're leaving a long hard day of working in the agora and then they're going to watch someone you know stab their eyes out and 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 aristotle's like why do we want to do that and he comes up with really great answers one is simply well the thing that makes us human is our desire to know man wants to know man's desire to know is what aristotle says makes us human so we want to know everything and he has a great line in the poetics where he says even the vilest creatures in the throes of death we want to know what that looks like we want to know what every feeling feels like but we don't necessarily want all those things to happen to us we don't necessarily want to feel all those things in relation to ourselves so art can be a wonderful place to explore the darkest regions of the human experience that we need knowledge of, and we need to sate our curiosity of, um, but we don't necessarily want to experience or or create in real life. And then the other thing he says is is catharsis. And at that time, that word catharsis would, was a medical term that literally meant purging wounds. Um, and he's the person that sort of uses this term in the way that we think about it now when we talk about you know emotional catharsis is a purging um of the feelings that gather in us he says specifically of pity and fear and that we again we need a place to put those emotions and so we pity oedipus and we fear his fate and he enacts those for us on a stage and we can cry and we can yell or we can be afraid and we can purge those emotions and then we don't revisit those emotions on our children or our loved ones or strangers Hmm. in the street. So he he thinks that this is that tragedy plays a really important role in, through being a well-regulated human. And then lots of other philosophers throughout the history of Western philosophy picked up this thread and they explore the paradox of tragedy in music. Schopenhauer talks about it. in Music, Kant talks about it, um, and then my sort of my mentor in philosophy, the person who I worked with most closely um the most brilliant philosopher of aesthetics that's alive right now noel carroll wrote a very famous book about horror or horror, horror films why do we want to you know why are there 18 saw movies or whatever why do we keep wanting to watch these saw movies um well there's some important things that are happening hmm. mentally and emotionally when we're watching you know jigsaw like a banker on a In an elevator. I haven't seen these movies, so I don't actually know. I think that's basically the premise, though.
1: I haven't haven't seen that either, but but I went through a very specific life phase where I watched horror movies. When I was about 14, that's all I wanted to watch.
0: Yeah, so that's probably interesting age-wise, too, right? There's a lot of rage happening in your teen years, a lot of emotions to purge. So I I had read a lot about dark tourism, but I hadn't seen anything in the philosophical literature Hmm. that was applying this paradox of tragedy to people's vacations. So we talk about it with art, we talk about it with music, we talk about it with plays, we talk about it with movies, but there's this phenomenon, and I think it's still growing, this phenomenon of people spending their hard earned money and time and effort to travel to places that have experienced tremendous tragedies, Cambodia, and the Khmer Rouge being being one of them. And I had read this outrageous statistic that was, and I'm going to get it wrong now, but it was something like 75% of the GDP of Cambodia came from people coming, flooding Cambodia to go see the killing fields and to see uh, Tol Slang or to go, you know, there's there's all these, and I went to Badambang too, which is not in the book, but there's these caves that you can go to in Bang where you can see where people were just thrown into caves and died and you can see their skulls still and this was something that people were paying money and buying tickets to go go look at and so i i wanted to explore this idea of paradox of tragedy and try to understand the travel aspect of that being so interested in travel and i think that part of the problem of this project, which I write about in the book, is I really thought I could be a distance observer to this phenomenon of people going to look at Towers of Skulls and that I wouldn't be a participant. And yes, I'm going there, but it's like I'm not really there. And so I was always, you know, and that's false. Um, And so a lot of the chapter is sort of me at odds with The project itself and what I'm doing, and then recognizing that I'm capable of, just like so many of these people around me, like capable of sort of a dehumanizing instinct, reducing a culture and a people and history to tragedy, to its most tragic aspect. And throughout the book, a lot of what I'm talking about is people's ability to do that to me with my disability, to reduce my humanity down to what they see as a pitiable aspect.
1: Describe um, your disability quickly because we um, haven't touched on it yet.
0: I have sacraligenesis, which means I was born without a sacrum bone. So the set of nerves that the sacrum controls, I, I don't have those nerves. So I'm much shorter than the average human woman. Adult woman, I don't know, I said human woman, uh, average adult <laughs> woman, I walk with like a sort of side-to-side gait that's very pronounced. Um, I have also a pain disorder that is related to um, hip dysplasia and, and various spinal difficulties. So I'm very visibly disabled. It's It's not very possible to be around me without noticing this. And a lot of the idea around disability is that it's something to be pitied and feared. And that's how I have been treated by a lot of people in my life, where they'll fail to see the full scope of my humanity because it's so easy to reduce me down to what they see falsely as an inherently tragic flaw, you know, or what um, Francis Galton, who was sort of the originator of a lot of eugenicist ideas, calls nature's failure. Disability is nature's failure. So that perspective is one that's followed me around my, my whole life. And in Cambodia, I have this moment of realization of just how human that that is and how easily I can do that to other people. And that's a very important thing to recognize because it's often, it's often very easy to go like, oh, people are doing this to me. And hmm. it's like, no, all of our brains are bad. <laughs> all of our brains are capable of these profoundly um, reductive or stereotypical, or we all just reach for narratives, ingrained narratives, and if those narratives are bad, then those are that's what we put forward. So in the book, when I'm talking about disability or when I'm talking about the way that I'm viewed, it's extremely important to me that I'm not ever – asking the reader to think about a behavior that I'm not also equally willing to think about and that we're on this sort of journey of thinking about bodies and space together and there's no like me versus anybody. There are no villains in the book.
1: Well, you position yourself as a villain as much as a hero, Tot-
0: right? Oh, yeah, I'm totally... I think I'm the worst person in this book by a mile. Like, there's some readers that have read this but I, Most people have been like, oh, it's good that... But there have been some readers that are like, she doesn't know that she's the worst or something. Not not really that, but, you know, like... And I'm like, no, I know. I know. That's the whole well, point. It's like I wrote it. I wrote know? it. I, I told you all this stuff about myself. But it's true. You know, it's just. It's just... It's just, um, yeah, just the darker, less favorable parts of being alive, being in a human mind.
1: Well, it's interesting how your story, I mean, the story you tell about yourself, to yourself and and the way you present to other people is is threaded throughout the whole book. It's an interesting moment with you and your tuk-tuk driver in Cambodia, where you sort of realize that it is sort of absurd that the menu of tourist options is not just you know bus to anchor Wat mm-hmm. but then also this brutally like the worst chapter of Cambodia's history has a huge uh, tourist industry involved with it and there's an extent to which he his job involves telling a certain story being a certain presence mm-hmm. and I think often as travelers we forget about this that we we have guides that we like but we forget that the guides are performing a version of themselves f- to sort of make themselves more marketable to our experience of the yep. place
0: Absolutely. Yeah. He, and he, yeah, really reveals this where he says, you know, you, you like me because I know how to do a, basically a westernized and like a version of myself that makes you feel safe
1: hmm. and makes
0: you feel comfortable. And I noticed this where I was really reacting to just an intensity like that, that, that you feel in Asia, like just a, and I mean, you feel this in New York as well, like a way that people communicate, a, a speed with which people move, um, that the congestion of the cities, like those can all be really difficult if you don't understand, if you're not fluent in that sort of city life, or you're not fluent in the ways in which communication changes based on location. And I'm extremely used to it in New York, but I know when people come to visit me, I can see in their eye, I'm like, oh, that's right, okay, you're, okay. we're going to just, we're going to take the subway, and people are going to shout at you, and it's going to be fine, um, and I think when you travel, you can forget that, even if you are from a city, and you're going to another city, it's obviously not the same thing, you can forget that you don't have that fluency, and Checha was someone who was, just knew that he would make more money, get better tips appeal to more customers if he just performed this westernized version of himself. And, of course, I didn't. At the beginning of this chapter, I go, oh, he, there was something about him. He just called to me. <laughs> I'm like, I immediately knew this was my person. And it's like, well, yeah, because he was gaming me co- correctly. Well, and, it was
1: a sort of a set piece because there's yeah. the tuk-tuk drivers who are shouting. Yeah. And you decided to choose the... the
0: well yeah because the tuk-tuk drivers they're all fighting for your business and one of them actually lifted a backpack off of my shoulders and put it to just aggressively when my and then chetra was just calm and i was sort of you know so rattled also from like a 24-hour flight that i was just gravitating toward the calmness of this of this man and and the safety that i felt around him which isn't real You know, it's all, all of it's a performance. And I was no less safe with the tech-tech drivers that were just yelling and saying, get it, you know, tech-tech-tech-tech. It's like, you go around Asia and people are just yelling tech-tech-tech-tech-tech. Like, that doesn't make me inherently less safe. It's just that I didn't understand the fluency of it. And I love that. I mean, again, it's like the whole book is is me constantly, because like that chapter begins with this idea of like, Oh, I've found my person, and then it's like, no, you're just, you're just being sold to very well, and that's great, and I still really like Chetra.
1: And you asked him. I forget how this works, but he sort of gave you, a well, one he gave you a secret, air quote, secret beach experience. Yes, that turned out to be sort of secret, but not really.
0: It was still like a tour. it was still like a tourist destination. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think he was still in in that silo of playing his tuk-tuk, you know, the calm tuk-tuk driver yeah. version is like, he wa- he knew you didn't really want a secret place. He you, you wanted a different version of what tourists usually want. And then he took you to an amusement park Yeah, under the guise of air quotes authenticity. So this
0: was, and I think that was the most authentic, ex- you know, air quote, authentic experience that I had in Cambodia because it was all Cambodian families, just living a life and feeling joy and so, yeah, it's like the,
1: hmm,
0: hmm. the the way in which the sort of movement towards quote unquote authenticity in that chapter is, is very intentional, but also is just how it happened, where it's like it begins with this menu of highly curated spaces, a literal laminated menu of highly curated spaces that I could just point to. And then he's like, oh, OK, I'll give you the secret off menu place I got you I know what you but again he's gaming me because he's looking at me going oh she thinks she's a a real traveler but it's it was all the same thing it just wasn't on the laminated menu and then once we got very comfortable he just like took me where he took his cousins you know and it was Mm. just this this sort of simple it honestly really reminded me of being at a state fair it was just tons of families and diet cokes and sort of incredibly lit up ferris wheels and cords everywhere and tired cambodian you know carousel operators and kids screaming and it was just joy it was just like normal joy and yeah and that's where the chapter ends
1: I think that's an underappreciated surprise of travel or maybe even of, of the difficult beauty of travel. Um, my wife has family in Norway and we visited there this summer, but it's sort of a provincial part of Norway. And so when people said, Oh, how are the fjords? It's like, well, we didn't go there. We went to yeah. the logging museum in Sorumson. And it was amazing because it's not the, the high, it's not, the, you know, the glossy laminated card parts of Norway that you go to, but it's mm-hmm. where uh, a lot of local pride shines. Um, Interestingly, when I was in Thailand, I went to a place called Suk, which is a cowboy ranch. And I, I grew up in Wichita with Cowtown, but here was mm. sort of like the Thai vision of Cowtown, which was sort of based on cowboy movies, and there were no Westerners going to the cowboy ranch. It was middle-class Thai people going to this place, and so that was, it felt like a treat for me. I
0: love
1: that. You use the term curated spaces, and that includes the Killing Fields. That includes, um,
0: there t- were talk mo- about that, yeah. I mean, that was the thing, I where I really started to feel so conflicted and, like, deeply uncomfortable is that both Toll Slang Prison and the Killing Fields were the quietest, cleanest, and most, like, elegant and curated spaces that I went to in all of Cambodia because they are, you know, so tourist-heavy. It felt like you were in a little peaceful park. You go out to the Killing Fields, and you can just kind of, you know, put, put your blinders on and you feel like you're just out of park. There's one point in that chapter where I've talked about, I'm out of the killing fields and I'm walking around and I just have an urge to lay down and eat an ice cream and read a book because it feels like, you know, I'm in some garden in
1: Hmm. France
0: Hmm. and the rest of the city is so dusty and so loud and so full of life and so vibrant and this collision of of all these different energies. But where you take the Taurus or to these, you know, the killing fields is like rolling hills and these nice sidewalks. And the hills that you're walking over are literal graves. And you're looking at pits of, you know, where thousands of bodies are buried. And you're looking at a tree where they were bashing the heads of babies and killing them against what they call the killing tree. And there's a huge you know sort of sculpture pillar thing in the middle, obelisk essentially, like a hollowed out obelisk that's filled with skulls. And everybody's in awe of it and they're taking I mean it looks like um like a strange contemporary art piece. And people are just taking all these pictures of this, you know, gigantic skull obelisk and it was very peaceful it was very quiet you could buy snacks you know and that felt really awful <laughs> to me it felt so horrible and i very quickly would would try to get out of those spaces so my project kind of failed cuz i didn't know i didn't know how to process my presence in such a space but one thing i thought about a lot is um the urge to keep one's wounds clean, and that's what those spaces mm. also sort of felt like was a was an urge to keep a wound clean, and from to, the
1: Cambodian perspective.
0: Well, I don't even know. I I don't no. I don't I don't I don't know if it was really from the Cambodian perspective. It was I think it was. I think it's actually well. I don't. I think it's about presenting a wound to a western audience as clean and sanitized and safe and i think that resonated with me because i often want to present my own pain or the worst parts of myself or my own suffering in the cleanest safest way as well so this resistance to being authentic i guess or honest or messy or um disordered and there's a moment where I say like oh do you know I say this to Chetra like do you go and and spend any time here and he said well we did when it was just a field but now it's like Disneyland. you know it's like sorrow Disneyland so of course there's nothing authentic left there for for the Cambodian people
1: and, and there's a it's part of the tourist economy I remember yeah. I went there 23 years ago 23 and a half years ago and I remember experiencing it, and it is affecting, if not cathartic, and then walking by and then, like a tuk-tuk driver was trying to sell me souvenirs, and I felt right. affronted. And then the more I thought about it, it's like, actually, you know, I got my experience, you know, I got whatever I was supposed to feel there, whatever has been curated for me to feel, my understanding. But this guy, this is where, this is his living, you know, yeah. that he isn't there pondering genocide. Um, he's trying to make a living and by selling a few trinkets out there. And so even just my feeling irritated at him eventually became something that I thought about, that gave me another perspective. I think Mm -hmm. it's easy to forget in curated spaces, but really anywhere as travelers that the people who live in a place have a perspective that is, that is different from yours and it's their place. Uh, and so in a way I thought he was cheapening my experience of the killing fields by trying to sell me souvenirs when in fact, you know, he he understood. He saw it every day. Yeah, you know, it made yeah. more sense to him. So eventually, we're gonna have to let you go fall asleep because you've been up up since four o'clock. I have. What can we leave people with in terms mm. of what we've talked about just now? Because it feels like that balance. There, there's all these balances, you know, You there, there's your early experience versus Cambodia. There's sort of your mom's influences versus your dad's. There's the travel yearnings that you have versus the home that you're building and, and these ex- very experiences that sort of replicate certain quotidian moments of travel. Um, and so what, and we've given our listeners a lot to think about, what can we leave them with?
0: Well, that's a great question. Yeah, there's a lot of, as you're describing, a lot of polarities in the book very intentionally. And the book doesn't offer any answers about how to elegantly or even intelligently navigate these polarities of the self. But I think what it does try to offer, and maybe what I would leave people with, is a person, me, who is engaged in this text in a genuine willingness um, to not feel as though being pulled in multiple directions is a bad thing, and that in fact to feel the sort of polarities of the self or the dichotomies that exist within us and the conflicts that they produce or the failures that they produce that those are all things that can lead us to the greatest experiences of of beauty diff- truly difficult beauty so rather than try to numb or assuage or soften the corners of those things i think the book is me really trying to live in those in those spaces um and find yeah and find beauty there
1: this has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Chloe Cooper Jones' memoir, Easy Beauty, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.